Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, presented by the tech doctor, Ronan Leonard. Check this podcast today. We're at the, the monthly Harvey Nash uh, Double Tech Talks, and we're talking about security. So, guys, introduce yourselves. Yep, my name is Owen Pendlebury. I'm a senior manager in Deloitte. Um, I lead the penetration testing and red teaming teams, and I'm also vice chair of the global board of OWASP. My name is Ross Bellman. I'm also a senior manager in Deloitte on the cybersecurity team. I, I suppose I, I'm on the security program management and strategy side, and I specialize in cloud security. Um, I'm a, this, currently the president of the Irish Cloud Security Alliance chapter, also on lecture in NCI and cybersecurity. All right, so tell us a bit about basically tonight you're going to give a talk on security. What are you going to be talking about? Yeah, so my, my talk's about the anatomy of an attack. Um, so uh, really just about what an attacker actually looks for, uh, some sample attacks, um, and like how they actually would profile a user or an organization to, um, to eventually get to the point where they're in the organization. Ross, what are you going to talk about? Um, well, largely I'm, I'm focused on, on the payment service directive too, but looking at the kind of the wider challenges for payment service providers, banks and financial institutions, things like AI, <clears throat> um, virtualization, uh, cloud technology, I suppose, um, cryptocurrencies and blockchain, and all these technical technological challenges that face quite static financial institutions. I mean, technically static over the last 50 years, so it's, it's a bit of a mind shift for these kind of financial institutions to kind of get their head around these and then the security risks that come with those. Yeah, because I see in banks right now aren't still too focused and, and positive about crypto. Yeah, it goes kind of, it goes back and forth. You hear some positive news and negative news at the moment. I think um, UBS and some others, they, they did some trials around Ethereum and some other product sets, but uh, it didn't pan out. And I think it is heavily because of the lack of regulation and the lack of standardization. But I think that'll come. I really do believe in cryptocurrencies and they will thrive in the future, but there is a regulation perspective that has to be fed into it. It just won't work if it's unre- unregulated. It's unfair yeah. if it's unregulated. But for me, there's too many shows going on at the moment, and you don't know which coins to back. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they come out at, at, at lightning speed, don't they? There's probably a, co- a coin coming out every second. Yeah, and they've, they've hit a rock bottom as well, yeah. they, haven't they? But that's it. I think that it's, it's pretty much the Gartner hype cycle, if you, if you kind of follow, follow those kind of trends. It kind of peaked about this time last year. I think Bitcoin was at 20,000 20, at one point. Yeah. And then it kind of spiraled down. What's it at? About 4,000 yeah. now? I'm not too sure. But um, I think it, it's peaks and troughs. It's fairly volatile. But with these things, like all technology, if, if you remember the cloud hype um, of the past five years and the peak, then now it's into organizations are implementing or definitely have a strategy around cloud computing over the last two, three years, and it's now into a kind of implementation phase. Where if you talk five years ago, it was overhyped, and you know the focus was on it. It's quite similar kind of on a peak and trough mentality with that, yeah. but it's, it's, a, it's an interesting one to watch because fortunes years ago, are being lost. But eight years ago, I did a cloud uh, diploma in NCI, right. and we were told that oh, the next thing is going to be the cloud, the cloud, the cloud. Sure. And in, in our course, we did about eight different, different languages. Yeah. I'm thinking, okay, we're doing these different languages. Why are they of use to the cloud? Surely you only pick two or three to stick with them and that eight. Well, that's it. And even the definition of cloud, like I have a problem with just the cloud because yeah. there's SaaS pass and infrastructure as a service and they're all three very different things in my to my mind um, but and one built on top of the other with SaaS and, and pass and infrastructure yeah. so it's a bit of a triangle but but really when you talk where cloud first 
that's not a thing. We're, we're you know, all plowed in. Like Office 365 is a different thing from Azure. And then AWS, there's different use cases and, and technologies behind all of these things. So using that broad term is kind of, um, I'm kind of against it really. But, um, <laughs> but, but it does, I suppose, um, require focus. So some of these languages are, are relevant to some particular topics. So... Like for some particular, um, I suppose, um, cloud models and service types, and yeah. particular um solutions as well. So, AWS learning about AWS is a completely different thing from Google Cloud, and then virtual private cloud, the EMC stack or the Dell EMC stack is completely different as well. So, again, the wide net of calling, I have a cloud degree. What does that actually mean when you scrape to scrape beneath the surface? Really, what have you specialised in? And that's the important thing. Yeah, because in our course, was more as we were trying to be like uh, middle management material. But the problem is, if you're middle management, why are we doing so many languages? Surely you should you should uh, know how to deploy, know how it works, and uh, it's going to be deployed rather than have to program yourself. Exactly. Well, there's a there's a, a point to that as well. So it's that shared responsibility model with what you're outsourcing to the to the vendor and what you're doing internally and what your capability is yeah. internally to do that. So from a management perspective, it's good to understand the concepts, the theory, particularly the risks and the security requirements. But then from the day to day management, you're looking at your experts at, at each of those kind of uh, language or solution types, and um, your architects or your network engineers who are specialized in that particular cloud solution. Yeah, because when I first started, of course, security was there, but wasn't as big as it is now because the cloud was still basically the next big thing, and no one actually knew how to be secure or what security products are we going to be using. Absolutely, and I think it's changed, like the landscape is changing so quickly, and it's, it's to my mind, the Azures of the world, they own the information, they can offer the product set yeah. from Microsoft to support all of your security requirements in the few 10, 10 years, not even 10 years, five years, even now potentially. They have so so much going on from a security perspective. They caught up so quickly to, to Amazon in the past five years that it's absolutely, it's incredible to watch what, what, what they can offer and what the future holds for Microsoft. They really woke up in the last two or three years to the but potential. Three years ago, I was at an event that they were they ran. It was all to do with deep-level testing and programming. And it was running in, D, in a UCD. When they were doing this event, half the guys in the, in the, in the room were actually using Macs, but they were using Macs. I said, that's because Steve Bomber's gone. I said, Bomber's gone now, you can do what you want. He goes, yeah, because the, the current guy in there now, yeah. I think, said, he used to be a programmer. Right. And he knows basically that the new model for Microsoft is we don't care what machine you're using as long as you're using our products. Sure. Yeah, Whereas before, yeah. Bomber's view was it's got to be Microsoft hardware and software. And that's it. That's it. And that you have to buy into that agnostic technology kind of agnostic infrastructure, agnostic mentality if you want to be cloud first. So I think Microsoft have to have this interoperability buy-in yeah. with AWS and with with Google Cloud and all the big players from an IAS IAS um, perspective as well to really drive the whole thing. So everyone everyone's a winner all the way up through the stack. If these things are interoperable, if you can fall over from one to the other to the other, and if you have certain uh, loads that are suitable for AWS and suitable for Azure and suitable for like that's where the market will kind of pan out it'll be down to what the product set offer within those cloud solutions because yeah, remember when I was in college we, we used to do a project to deploy something to the cloud first ever module and uh, Azure we were doing it per instance and went to credit card and one of the guys charged I think it was $200 for one instance because at that point Azure hadn't got, to, hadn't got to the same level as Amazon 
and that they realised that they hadn't really asked what cost it involved. And that's that's one of the key things. So over the past, I suppose, just tracking this, and I suppose I've been involved in the cloud security um, piece for about the last six years, really, and I watched kind of Microsoft kind of blossom to boom to, to take on AWS or to begin to take on AWS. And what they found is, so it was constantly security. What For all these surveys done by Gartner and Forrester, security was the top concern for companies going to the cloud, from small to medium-sized yeah. to large enterprises. Security, security, security. Over the last couple of years, it's actually, been cost so actually been able to price forecast and manage the cost of these cloud services and so getting transparency around that and being able to test that pre-migration I always felt was in the interest of the cloud service provider but now it's come to the fore as their top concern so these guys have to address that or do better at addressing that so offering more transparency into their their pricing and what what the impact will be on their on their uh, customers so customers have finally bought into it i'm not going to be able to afford as much security as azure it's in azure's interest yeah. to be more secure than me they can spend a million times times more than I can ever as a small to medium-sized enterprise in security and they can manage it better than I can because they have the resources plus it's in their interest it's a it's a selling it's a it's a selling um, opportunity for them to sell the security of their stack or, or um, yeah and brand it as such so so it's kind of customers have finally bought into that perspective that cloud service providers can manage the security much better than they can in-house in yeah and I want to guess <coughs> your sorry you're talking about pen testing Hey, does that involve cloud or is it uh, offline stuff as well? It's pretty much everything from cloud to offline applications, so take clients, uh, IoT devices, uh, ATMs, yeah. uh, pretty much everything. Um, so from a cloud perspective, like we would find that um, like even as a war, they'd, they'd have their WAF on for all the time. Yep. So like from a pen testing perspective, one little bit of... Uh, malformed text and it, it just errors and blocks the user and so on so we need to get like from like a WAF perspective we need to get uh, that white also whitelisted uh, to, to allow us to actually test the application and the code that the application is written on rather than the actual WAF so um, WAFs are brilliant to have um, to protect your applications and so on but um, if, if a bypass of the WAF is uh, found then um, you're really just solely relying on the code and the vulnerable and how strong the code is uh, from a security perspective. It's interesting, isn't it? So they have to lower their defences a little bit to let someone in and test underneath yeah. before they go in. So it's 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 a it's an interesting kind of a a dynamic right off the bat, yeah. where, whereby you're black box testing, but you know you still need some level of defences lowered, and then and then even yeah. from a AWS perspective that the, from a contractual agreement they have to be given a certain amount of 24 hours notice or something yeah. like that before you can pen test yeah. and so on so there's yeah. but like one thing I always <coughs> tell my clients is that we're not testing the WAF yeah. um, you're hiring us to actually test your application and identify whether there are any vulnerabilities or issues within the application uh, that could cause uh, say the application to be hacked so should the WAF fail or be misconfigured and so on so it's I think that's one of the most important things to not solely rely on uh, some sort of technology uh, to uh, to block it. Layered approaches is great uh, for a from a security perspective, but um, you're you're hiring somebody to test one thing in particular um, rather than uh, the underlying infrastructure and protection. You know, so what about BOID? How is that going to affect when you do all these testing? Uh, from a client perspective. Uh, when you're bringing your own device, it's really about understanding the security yeah. of the actual underlying MDM solution. Um, so 
Um, you're not exactly concerned about the um, the device's security. You're concerned about the um, the actual sandbox that the MDM solution provides. So everything that from an organization's point of view, they're storing within that sandbox. Um, and as long as the sandbox is configured uh, correctly, then they're going to uh, keep that data secure. As long as you're not able to, as long as they have it configured, that you're not able to gain access to the systems outside of that sandbox um, as well. So I think BYOD was kind of <clears throat> hyped up, wasn't it, in the last three years? And companies have kind of not, not so much bought into it as everyone has expected, particularly about five years ago, BYOD and kind of addressing BYOD concerns. And the easiest way to do it is just don't allow people to bring their own devices yeah. onto your network. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's another important thing. Do you have those uh, solutions in place to, to monitor uh, for malicious devices that are connecting into your network? Do you understand what the devices should be in the first place? And then if somebody brings in their own device um, and there's a different signature on the network, there's some suspicious activity, are there uh, solutions in place like a... Uh, like, Not network yeah, access network control, access control yeah. to block it or <coughs> whether you have some monitoring tools to, um, to identify that there is some uh, sort of foreign device in your network or uh, suspicious activity and then once you identify that do you actually have people in, uh, there to uh, to actually identify whether it is malicious or whether it's it's just something that they've never seen before so that, that, that's an important thing. Uh, most organizations probably wouldn't have it in, an internal team, uh, let alone some sort of monitoring device uh, or solution to, to identify that there, there is somebody in on the network. They, they spend a lot of money on the, the outside, uh, protecting um, people from getting in, but um, they, they actually, they're very, like I always use the analogy, hard on the outside and soft and gooey on the yeah. inside. Um, so like, you're only as strong as uh, the defences that you put in place. Also, where, but if you're somewhere that you can get device mimics, so if you go to a network and it's mimicked by somebody else on a device, so you think you're logged into a network, but you're not. Yeah, so f from a wireless uh, network yeah. perspective, there's, there's a few different aspects that you need to think about. So when you're going into a coffee shop, um, they're, they're not securing the network. There's no encryption uh, between uh, over the actual network traffic. Um, just from a client server perspective there's also devices like Wi-Fi pineapples um, where you're able to um, stand up your own instance of an actual wireless network so uh, the way the wireless networks work is that um, so my, my phone there is constantly uh, sending out beacons that it's connected to X amount of wireless networks so it's saying hey can I connect to this wireless network is it in range um, and then the way that the Wi-Fi pineapple works is this says, yeah, I'm that wireless network, even though you could be miles away from yeah. the actual wireless network, the Wi-Fi pineapple is uh, telling the, the phone that I'm that, connect to me, and then um, you use something like SSL strip to, uh, to um, strip the actual uh, network or the encrypted traffic on certain applications. So yeah. there's different levels of security and different um, ways that you can protect against that, but... Uh, it's, it's really about understanding. Uh, I, I think your behavior on those wireless networks as well is important. So the possibility of like an evil twin or, or a rogue access point sitting there and someone monitoring all your traffic. The key is yeah. don't look at sensitive information or don't transmit or communicate sensitive information if you can avoid it within a cop shop. Definitely don't use corporate devices and connect them to... to and, it, and if you do, use a VPN. Um, yeah. So I know a lot of... Like we have a VPN, a lot of orgs do, um, and... Like the the normal kind of behavior is to click into the, the Wi-Fi and then try and start uh, your email and download your emails, but um, access the VPN first just to 
to make sure that all your network uh, traffic is encrypted. Yeah, also if you're out in the country, make sure whatever you're accessing isn't someone's going to them. Like if you're going to online banking, don't do that anywhere. Anything that involves buying or selling things with money, mm-hmm. the moment you're using that, you're giving them, you're getting people a chance to actually yeah. get data. And browsers these days are actually are really really good for this. Um, so if they identify that it is under over an insecure uh, channel, yeah. then they'll they'll notify you and say that. Um, this is like they'll actually tell you that it's insecure. Do you want to continue or not? Um, and uh, from the tech savvy people, they won't. But um, it's <coughs> it's important that the non tech savvy people will will actually question that and say, well, I'm I'm supposed to be on X website. Yeah. Are they normally secure or not? Um, and then if they're unsure, just browse away. Yeah, so last week a browser that came out was looking for 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 your browser. That tells you what websites are safe to actually access for information, and it's run by journalists. And one of them was saying, "Don't go near the Daily Mail because they they've been sued so much in the past. They've done so much, and it goes Wikipedia. You can't trust it because it's open framework to edit." Yeah, you know, hmm. um, yeah, like it's it's the typical college uh, scenario where they say never ever um, quote or reference anything from Wikipedia yeah. or any of those sites because. You, you're not like it's not a reliable source because anybody can go in and edit it because so one time someone had a wikipedia pat kenny eats, eats babies <laughs> and i put it in this joke and i'm thinking the fact that that could be done yeah. that's it so we just so i'm always when i look at wikipedia i always look at it and some stuff on there i can believe but certain sense i'm not i'm worried about the unless there's numerous sources of statements is true and you can click an outside link and tell you that yeah like the, the well from a wikipedia perspective it's like the the, the text is normally good but uh, when you look at the the references uh, below the text <coughs> yeah. um, they're normally a better uh that's what i look for as well to make to sure. yeah because um, if we see one is linked to a web publication or a, or like a, a well-known journal that you know for or a book you've heard of that's exactly. fine yeah um so even the OWASP website so um, one of our uh, global board of directors went in to the Wikipedia uh, page on OWASP and altered that um, while we were in LA just to update the, the actual board of directors and their roles and so on but like so it just goes to show anybody can yeah and I, I think that Wikipedia have got to make it a bit more stringent so that whatever's on there is factual and not factual I think that that's the <coughs> that's the business model isn't it let yeah. the community decide or let the public decide what goes up so yeah. It's um, <coughs> definitely shouldn't be relied upon. Anyway, for sure. <laughs> no, no, no definitely. If you're doing your thesis and suddenly you're asked on what your references, Wikipedia and then Facebook posts or Twitter, yeah, like you can't do that. You can be guaranteed that somebody will will snigger. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, when I, back when I was in college, Wikipedia was just starting off, and I can't see anybody. We're going to say we're going to use Wikipedia as a source. Nowadays, the white more crime is so popular, but still, you think, why would you use a source? When you don't know who actually wrote this, hmm. or is that in it? Yeah, no. That's it. But even in in the <clears throat> in the news, wasn't uh, um, the reporter in Das Bild in Germany was he had eighty yeah. fake stories that he just invented to become, and nobody checked them. So you know that way. It was same Boris Johnson years ago when he was working for the uh, one of these papers, Times. Times everything he wrote wasn't true. Well, copied from somewhere else, and he was getting paid a lot of money, but. In the end, he got fired, but he's still back working now for Telegraph, getting a quarter million a year. I'm thinking, <coughs> so why would we trust somebody who was caught before plagiarizing and also making up stories and he, he gave him a job? Yeah, I don't know how to answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's just like, if you look at it, like, I'm thinking like social media and GDPR, that's come into it. GDPR is making social media basically a, a lot harder, easier to regulate in certain ways because of the fines brought in. And it means that your data, you know, it's going to be stored somewhere that 
can be harvested too often. Well, it's interesting the the use of <clears throat> the use of date. Well, GDPR it's less than a year old. Yeah. Okay, just to say that first of all, and the world didn't end when it came in on the twenty fifth of May last year, as everyone expected. But it different definitely didn't did force a, a different mindset in organisations on how they use data, how they manage, store, and and, and effectively what they why they're using data. Yeah. Do they need to be using the data they they have? <clears throat> so it's definitely the right steps in the right direction. Has it gone far enough? What it will evolve in the next 10 years? It's hard to say at the moment, but currently the, the soft fines or the fines that have come, if you call whatever, 50 million or soft fine, but the slow fines that are starting to, to come up will, will definitely increase, <clears throat> in my opinion. And again, that'll drive organizations to focus more um, from a less defensive stance on yeah. let's hand this to our legal team and let them fight it out in court for the next to a more proactive let's get our house in order and really use this use this um, GDPR reg- legislation to, to look at how we're managing and using data and making sure we're using it effectively to deliver for our business because if you don't need the data why have it yeah. do you know that way so, so it's just it's a different mindset and definitely a step in the right direction from a security perspective it's driving really really good behaviours from what we've seen in organisations they're really starting to get a hold control of the data and secure the data in the right way so it's um, it's definitely uh, cleansed a lot of companies and got them to think about what they do from a business process perspective with this data and also how they're securing it so it's it's all good news we're also <coughs> notifying people what they're actually doing with the data so like I'm sure everybody's probably pestered with every single website that they go to to get cookie yeah. consents and privacy <coughs> consents so at least they're, they're telling you whether they're, they're potentially taking any data uh, or using your uh, your browsing history or yeah. something like that and also Brexit it can be another big thing to worry about with data as well because I mean we're not sure what's going to happen absolutely well Brexit they're <coughs> UK is a third country again, yeah. so it's even in a different kind of a mindset. Now, I know they've adhered to or they've agreed to adopt or maintain adoption of a number of, of EU regulations going forward. I'd imagine they will, and perhaps they'll go further in some respects and some other regulations as well. But um, I can't imagine they'll deviate it from it. But again, it does add complexities when you're an Irish entity or European entity. <coughs> that has to deal with companies in, in the UK now and how you actually deal with transferring data or transferring even managed service providers yeah. that have, are, have, um, <coughs> have data accessible to them, your customer data I accessible. I know in the past companies here in Ireland have used tech centres, tech call centres in Ireland to deal with your customers and if suddenly uh, you're, they're in e- 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 uh, Britain's along in the uh, EU zone, how do you handle that? Because it's going to be different because the data is no longer GDPR. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, I suppose, from from my perspective, I'm, I'm a big fan of policies and getting third parties to adhere to your internal company yeah. policies, just including GDPR in that as a mandate. So, including the fact that they need to be aligned to the GDPR requirements and I suppose evidence or give assurance of that and be able to audit them of their controls to, to meet that requirement is important. That, that's how I would tackle that and also from a contractual and SLA perspective is the only yeah. way. Because <clears throat> no, a few years ago, Twitter decided that any data that was outside uh, North America was going to handle to Ireland because they didn't realise that. But Ireland, because they've got more strict regulation in America, like the American government wants to access certain data they can because it's not held, held abroad. And then, the, like even in Europe, though, the, I mean, Germany traditionally has had a 
far higher standards from a data protection yeah. perspective and protecting their citizens' rights around data. That's why AWS, <clears throat> one of the many reasons that AWS stood up their data center in Frankfurt directly to deal with companies that didn't want their customer or um, company data going outside Germany. So they stood up a geolocation address for, for AWS to deal with those kind of companies and set up private clouds for them. So again, <clears throat> there's different cultural perspectives. I think the Irish perspective was quite trusting in companies traditionally with what they're doing with their information, whereas the German mentality would have been not trusting with, with companies right down through the service provider. Um, stack so it's just an interesting way of thinking about it but it's it's i think this um legislation like the gbpr are definitely steps in the right direction to get to get um and then other regulation like i'm talking about pst2 that's security is built into it's baked into that regulation I'll talk a lot about that that this evening but um uh, the NIS the NIS directive uh, again it's another one eu tiber is another one so these from a security perspective it's never been a better time for, for kind of regulations driving good behaviours across industries. Uh, and, um, and again, yeah. it, it's driving a and lot of good behaviours. To go back to, to Tiber, like, um, that's a European-driven one. Um, the central bank here hasn't really uh, come out with any guidance on it, but it's going to force the financial institutions to actually test their live instances of their, um, their sites, their networks, and so on. And normally the case would be that um, when you're testing a financial institution or an online banking application it would be done in a test environment so that you're not uh, there's no risk of the actual application going down or manipulation of some sort of data but now they're going to be forced to um to hire people to to just attack their website and their live instance and see what they can do yeah i guess that's going to be that's a good thing in the long term because mm. it guarantees that you, you know that uh, any app you're using is, is safe and secure exactly and like normally the case is that when you uh, deploy your website um, you normally um, have a number of different sprints going afterwards and that the, the output from those sprints get deployed to live environment um, and it might not be tested at that point so the old kind of perception of pen testing will be that you do once a year whereas um, the code deployments has, are coming every week so um, if there's significant code change to your application um, then it needs uh, to be tested um, especially when um, you're potentially introducing new bugs uh, to the environment. You know, I think it should be done when you don't know what's happening. It should be, you shouldn't be told it's going to happen. Like if you're told, we're well, do, doing pen test tomorrow. Like you might be told in your company, oh, tomorrow we're doing an annual uh, security for fire alarm in yeah. the building. But if you do a pen test, you're not told when it's happening. It's even yeah. better because that way you then can see system in real life. You're not getting people are suddenly changing how they work because they're getting a pen test. Yeah, and that's the beauty of it, red teaming because um, it can you, you can do a three week engagement on red teaming you can do a like a two year engagement on red teaming and you're literally just scoping out the organisation the people and trying to actually um, attack every every avenue so from people technology and the physical side of things um, so you're trying to to get into their buildings you're trying to access their applications yeah. their networks um, and so on so it could be as simple as um, tailgating somebody in from the bathroom yeah. uh, into an organization and planting a device uh, to persist on their network while you, you go home. Yeah, to me, the biggest flow is you. I've seen a lot of tech support guys have gotten their desks post its with all, the, all these passwords. <laughs> uh, I can't believe that that's still going around. And then uh, also, there's a thing as well as I've seen that uh, the guys with the most passwords to remember is, 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 a, is tech support guys. So mm -hmm. their passwords can be so easy they won't forget it. And I think that there's been new uh, guidance on passwords that, that have come out and it's not to 
to make to force people to change their password every every month or every couple of months. It's really to to encourage them to create strong passwords, things that aren't type bound to certain criteria, but you, you could have phrases, you could uh, like you could have uh, gigantic passwords that are like the complexity of them are um is are very strong, but um but not easily guessable or dictionary words or uh, something like that. So well, it's relatively recent. It's only I think about a year year and a half ago, and was based on some research they did in University of California in Berkeley, <coughs> where they actually did live live st- studies to see was it actually more secure to ch- to keep changing your password on a regular basis or did it drive bad behaviours like you mentioned putting stickies on yeah. the 12 passwords down there and they found it was the latter so kind of and the, I think the National um, Crime Centre in the UK Cyber Crime Centre in the UK were the first to kind of actually add a, kind of align to that they were quite quickly to, quick to say yes that 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 um, study makes sense and we're going to adopt that kind of philosophy and it's kind of slowly you've slowly filtered out now to kind of um, yeah. not change often but use from, strong yeah from a people <coughs> perspective like people tend to, to choose passwords that are very easy to easy to guess and then if they have one sort of password they, they tend to make a variation of that password yeah. and when they're forced to change it then they're looking to add a, a new variation so it's uh, there's only a limited amount of space that you can actually uh, use uh, do you think biometrics will sort out all of these problems really yeah, well, also, I've, got, I've got a few passwords that are in Irish <coughs> yeah and, and the problem is people aren't going to know that aren't going to know the language no so. and that's from a pen testing perspective that's one of the things that we always consider um, the actual geolocation of the, of the test so yeah. we can test in Germany in France in Ireland and like you say for instance we're trying to gain access to a server uh, we, we dump the hash uh, we're trying to crack the password we're not using English words we're using like different languages yeah. uh, f- uh, from that actual location as well so um, not many people do it but um, I think it's important to, uh, kind of thing to do um, yeah thank you very much for that, for, for that uh, Ross and uh, thank you very much for that uh, Owen and uh, have a great night thanks yeah, thanks cheers, cheers.